Good evening. Uh, Y'all find with me Psalm 24, the 24th Psalm. And we're going to look at four verses, specifically Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. That's what I'll read right now. If you'll find Psalm 24, we'll begin looking in verse 3. In verse 3 of Psalm 24, David writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to gather. I ask you, please, Father God, to give me the clarity and the vision, Father God. And give me the, the energy and the passion, Father, to stand before my family and to preach. Father, I, I have my doubts, Father God, about what I have prepared. And so, Father God, I pray, Lord, that you stand in the breach with me. And where I have failed, Father God, I pray that you succeed as only you can, Father God, where I am unable or unwilling, where I'm not the man or I should be, Father God, or the speaker I should be, Father, I pray to God that you, you carry me through those times because without you, Father God, we all fail who stand before men and women. We all fail in every endeavor, Father God, that lays claim to your name. But with you, Father God, and only with you, may we succeed. So I pray, Father God, that, that what I do right now be found pleasing, Father. And I pray, Father God, it's found pleasing because it's full of the Spirit. Because you've guided me, Father God, and you speak through me. And I pray, Father God, for your people, that they would hear today, Father God, they would be to act on what they hear. Uh, God, bless me, God, now as I present what you've given me, that I would do it, Father God, in a way that, that brings you honor and glory alone. I pray, God, now, Lord, that the cross is lifted up, that the truth of Christ would shine through more than anything else. In the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord. Amen. Okay, now, um, as, as we talk, I just want to share this one issue, and I think it's the main issue of the passage, especially these four verses. And that the fight against sin is the fight that defines the parameters of our lives, that establishes the everyday peace that we experience as believers. The issue we have individually, the issue we have as a church, is, uh, is an issue of sin. Sin's never not been an issue for us. We all struggle with sin. And if we're not struggling with it, simply put, we are by definition losing the battle. It is difficult, if not, if it, even if it doesn't feel impossible, sometimes as we war against our own flesh. Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 13. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. First thing he says, the flesh kills. The flesh kills physically. The flesh kills spiritually. We die as sinners. Because of our flesh. But he says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the command here from Paul within Romans is that we would do, as the King James Version says, we would mortify the flesh. My desire is to kill the old me, to see that old me die as quickly as possible. I don't want to be the old man. I don't want to have the old hang-ups. I don't have that old bigotries and the old shortcomings. I don't want to be caught up in the same stuck position that I was when I did not know Christ. And that, to be quite honest with you, I have been often under the blood, stuck, stuck on something. There was something I couldn't get past, something I couldn't uh, forgive, or, or something I could not get over. Now, I, maybe you guys don't know anything about that. I bet there are people in this room right now that absolutely know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And I guess the thing that adults do differently, kids get stuck on major things. Kids get stuck on, on abuse. Okay? Kids get stuck on neglect. Things that are criminal in their nature, right? Things in which when they happen to a child, somebody goes to jail. Folks, we're so much worse because adults get stuck on things that aren't criminal. We get stuck on things that are accidents, and we get stuck for decades. We get stuck on things in which there's no one really to blame. If you're a kid that's abused or a kid that's neglected, a kid that's taken advantage of or hurt, there's somebody to blame in that. Somebody was responsible. Someone should have done a better job, at the very least. We as adults will get stuck on things that, that don't make any sense, that aren't rational, right? And we'll even know we're not thinking rationally about this. We are blowing this so out of proportion because of our pride, our ego, that frailty and fragility that's natural to people. We'll blow it so out of proportion that, that, it, that it, it, it costs us decades. 10, 15 years, 20 years of, of no real progress, of no real seeking because of an issue. You know, look, I, I'm not saying everybody in this room, but I'm saying either we've done this or we all know somebody was just like that. Something happened, they just never got over it. Sometimes it's something big and sometimes it's not something that big. Sometimes it's just hard luck. I, I mean, I don't mean that I believe in luck. I think you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes things are just, things just, bad things just happen. And there's really nobody to blame. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to be, I don't want to be caught up in, in, in the limitations of the old man or the limitations of the younger me. Now, Paul gives us here in Romans 8 13 that collective command. But it's also really a divine thunderclap. It's a, from the mouth of Paul, it is this idea you better be doing this. I think I love the fact that the Bible does that. Even though we understand that, that sanctification, for instance, is an act of the will of God that will not fail. When we are in Christ Jesus, when we are born again, saved, he, we will be sanctified. By the definition of sanctification, we will be sanctified. But yet God is so thorough and so wonderful, and He understands exactly how He does this and who He deals with, that he constantly reminds us of issues like this. He doesn't leave them to chance. He doesn't not preach about killing your flesh, but he really does it in, in so many different ways, in so many different terms and language, and in such a different language throughout the scriptures that he does it over and over again. We're, we're constantly being reminded that we're in a warfare against our own sin. It, it instructs the church to begin immediately warring against the desires of the flesh. Each and every one of us, no matter what age we are, no matter what place we are in the kingdom, or how advanced or degraded we believe that we are, we all owe God at least this one thing, and that is to begin this process in obedience of, of warring against our flesh, of trying to see sin die in us. We won't complete the process. But it is a battle we undertake for the glory of God. Look at the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer determined the Christian life aptly. He described it perfectly when he wrote, When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle 
of the Spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. That's our job. We struggle against the flesh with everything that we have. Now, the issue I think that we come to is, is that we, we, we along the way, especially in adulthood, we, we, stop ex, we stop accepting everyone else's faults and start embracing our own. Which is really the opposite of what God wants us to do. God wants me to love and accept and be generous about your hang-ups and be at war with my own. What we tend to do is really focus on, on the way everybody else is and lose sight of how broken we are. The opposite of the faith. The opposite of what God wants us to do. There, there's no improvement for me in that. That's where I get stuck. I, I stay the same person for decade after decade after decade because I stop taking my own problems very serious. They're just who I am. They define me. They're my eccentricities. They're my uniqueness. No, they're not. I'm a horse's behind. And I need to change. And the only way I'll change is if I confront it. I can be gentle and loving and tender with yours, but I can't be coddling with my own. The problem is we start coddling ourselves and condemning others. The reason I'm gentle, or need to be gentle, is because I've got hang-ups too. Because I'm deeply imperfect myself. Look, as children of God, the Bible's straightforward in its condemnation of the, of the men and women we used to be. The old man and woman must die. Before the cross and before the gospel, and Paul's words illustrate the futility of the lost life. And here's the problem. When I say that, what I really mean is this. Not just the futility of the lost life, but the futility of the continuation of the lost life. Do you understand what I mean by that? That means I lived lost when I was lost. And now that I no longer, now that I have no longer am lost, I have no right to continue to live that way. God has, has bigger plans for me. He's got a better way for me to live and to be. Paul, Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 21. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that, at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? If there's anything that describes me at least before God drew me to the cross and, and also after, for much of the time after God drew me to the cross, was that I now admit I was involved in things of which I am now ashamed. I'm ashamed of the man I was. I'm ashamed of the bondages that were in my life. I'm ashamed of those things. And what Paul says is, but what, what were you getting out of the things you're now ashamed of? I have to admit, he asked me to admit this one thing, that my life before Christ was absolutely dead. And that my life under the blood that did not glorify him was wasted. That every moment, every second, everything in my life that did not point back to the cross was a waste of the blood. I got nothing out of it. I should be ashamed of it. Truly what fruit can come from any thought, any feeling, any word, deed, recreation, or vocation for which Christ has died such a bloody death. If Christ died for it, to, to, to atone for it, then what good can it be? If Christ suffered and died, to save me from that. Then how in the world can that in my life now help anybody 
or do anything or be any profit for anyone. It simply by definition cannot. Nothing, absolutely nothing good comes from the path of pain and sorrow that is the life of sin. Whether it is in the lost man or woman or in the saved man or woman. The path of sin and shame leads to nothing but pain and sorrow. And that is it. That is all it does. For the end of these things is death. It's what Paul declares at the end of Romans chapter 6 verse 21. The end of everything I did before was death. If I am in Christ now and I have allowed my life to be led in such a way that it brings glory only to me and it exalts those things from which Christ saved me by dying, it only ends in death. That's it. There's no wiggle room. There's no, there's no way to redeem that which is unredeemable. And that would be the dead life. That would be the life of sin. There's no way to, to put a, a happy face on it. It's always lipstick on a pig. It's always trying to say that something is, is good or worthwhile or decent or okay. And I get that a lot out of adults. It's not too bad. If you've got to say it's not too bad, it's definitely too bad. If you've got to justify it to anybody, including yourself, it's over the line. It's a violation of conscience. We don't want that to be... The last thing we want for that to be seared. Paul declares in Romans 6.21, The work of Christ on the cross instills into the dead life, not just physical, but life immortal, bestowed upon us from time immemorial. That literally it's not just physical life that we're talking about protecting here. Because we know sin can kill physical life. God is very clear about that. Sin can reduce physical life. Whether it is duration or it's the joy of. But we also know that on Calvary, Christ purchased for us eternal life, everlasting life. Not in the, a physical body that's broken by sin, but in a heavenly body. Preserved for us by God. His death, excuse me, his death was enough to bring life to those who have it not. However, the pursuit of everlasting life is not just a quest for heaven and the avoidance of the terrible consequences of hell, but it's an embracing of the need for living a holy, sacred, and set-apart life. Here's the difference. He did not just save us to bring us to heaven. And we need to, we need to think about heaven. We need to glory in heaven. We need to look to it all the time. You can't be too heavenly minded. But the reality is to think that somehow I am now going to heaven. I can do as I please. That is fire insurance. As we say in Baptist churches. God save me. I can do what I want to now. Nonsense. Utter, complete nonsense. God saved me. God saved me to make me holy, sacred, and set apart. That's why God saved me. That's why He saved you. We get as a reward out of that heaven. We get life eternal, infinite life with the infinite King. We get that, but the reality is that God saved us so that He could live through us, and He can only live through us when we're living a life that is pursuing Him and pleasing to Him. It's the only way. Look, where we're truly as Elihu accuses Job in Job 33, 27-28. Fascinating thing he says here. He says, He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. 
He has redeemed my soul from going down in the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Now let me share with you the New Testament interpretation for a very cryptic Old Testament passage. Simply put, we are, those lost, saved by Christ, are exactly the fulfillment of the very first verse there. We sinned and we perverted what was right. But yet, it's not being repaid to me. I'm not being judged for my sins. Someone intervened. Jesus Christ intervened. Even though my sins were deep and dark and black, and so were yours, my sins required hell. Yours required hell. The rightful way, place for us to wind up was having to answer for our sins eternally in a sinner's hell. Instead, God intervened. He did so with the gospel, which declared the cross the finished work of Jesus Christ that saved us eternally. I don't have to answer for what I did. You didn't have to answer for what you did. You did it. You sinned. You perverted what was right. Just as Elihu accuses Job of, just as we actually have done. We did that. But that's not, that's not all the blessing. In verse 28, He redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. Right there. I belonged in the pit. I belonged in, in the place of the dead, the place of punishment. I belonged in hell. But yet God redeemed me. It's a true declaration. Though I belong there, that is the rightful place God, in His love and His mercy and His grace, intervened with the blood of Jesus. And now I don't go there. But then here's the final one. And my life shall look upon the light. I understand I deserved hell. I understand that God that God has not called upon me to repay that. I understand that I was doomed for the pit and that God has redeemed me from the pit. And through all of that, now my response is to look to the light. Now I live a life in which light has become everything. Not darkness. Before, when I was lost, when I was sinning and perverting what was right, darkness was everything. I desired darkness. Now I look to the light. Our souls have been redeemed from going down into the pit of hell where sins would be paid in full, eternally with suffering. Never block that out of your mind. Make that be one of the first things that you tell anybody. Anybody. The wages of sin are death. Sin is paid for eternally in hell. That's where I was going. That's where you were going to pay eternally with suffering. We've not been repaid for what we have done. Looking upon the life, focusing our lives on righteousness and desiring holiness are the only functions of the life of a real believer. We have now changed our eyesight forever. We no longer crave darkness. We no longer tolerate darkness. We now seek the light. That is our job, to seek the light where it is found. We focus on righteousness. We desire holiness. This is why God saved us. Unfortunately, men and women must be reminded of bitter truths time and again because we tend to forget responsibilities and focus on rewards. And I think that's exactly what we tend to do in the American church. We'll preach, 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 preach heaven. And we won't preach what you're supposed to do tomorrow. Heaven is yours through Christ Jesus. And it cannot be lost. 
So therefore, what's most important is what does God want me to do right now? God, what is your claim to my life now? We rejoice in heaven and forget the price that was required to get us there. The bloody cross and the empty tomb. As well as in this world, with much pain and sorrow, comes enlightenment. As, as Lord Byron wrote, adversity is the first path to truth. As we recapture, one of the things we're doing today is we're going to recapture the amazing good of hardship. I understand why we, why we want to sometimes not be heavenly minded, but in some ways just sit and think about what comes. Because life is so hard. We've experienced it in this church, haven't we? Some, many of us recently, just how hard life is. And I think the thing that maybe I'm not so used to, that I want to get used to more, indignities. Do you know what I mean? Because some of us in this room may be a little attached to our dignity. Do you understand what I mean? And the reality is, is that life is full of a thousand indignities. A thousand times when you've got to eat crow. A thousand times when you've got to let somebody that you may not even consider to be your better talk to you like you're nothing. A thousand times when you've got to take it and you can't give it back. You just can't. You've got to smile and ask for seconds. And you've got to do that all the time. Some of you may not have ever lived that way, but lots of us room have lived exactly that way. The constant indignity of life. I don't mean I don't mean sickness and, and 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 tragedy and death. I mean the everyday little times in which we just really kind of get it stuck to us. Because I'll be honest with you, those are the things that tempt my flesh worse than anything. Those are the times that I want to, you know, I I I make a fist and squeeze so hard that my knuckles get white. Do you know what I mean? But the, but the intelligent part of you, Dawson, you just can't say anything back. Yeah, there are people that say something back. You know what we call them? The unemployed. Right? The always hunting a job people. We are, you know, how it is. I, I tell everybody, I, said, I, I like my job mainly because nobody in my house has learned not to eat yet. If they'll master not eating, I'd be great. Job won't be such a pressing issue. I'm just joking. You know I'm joking. But the reality is, is that, that a lot of us in a lot of situations, not just at work, in a lot of situations, have to s swallow even healthy pride. Feel like oftentimes you've got to grovel a little bit. And it can go down. It can stick in your throat, can it? That those are the things that I'm, I struggle with. And here's the, here's the deal. The reason I say that is because, because, Death doesn't come as often as it hurts us, right? We don't lose somebody every single day. In fact, many times we don't lose somebody every single year, do we? We have time to prepare for those things usually. In the average human life, we have time to prepare for those things. What we don't have time to prepare for are all of those times that we've just got to stand before somebody with our hat in our hand and just take it. All those times when somebody gets to talk to us any way they want to, and we got to take it. 
We're not ready for that. And those little indignities. I know it's, I know it's a, my, my speaking of the heartless is just a revelation of the fact that I continue to struggle with pride. The fact of the matter is that Christ hung on a cross to kill my pride. It shouldn't be an issue for me. People should be able to talk to me any way they want to. You know why? Because Jesus was crucified. Because he died for that. Why am I protecting that? Because the pride that I have is not a holy pride. The pride that I have is a human pride. It's a manly pride. It's something that's never served me at all in my life. It's never done one thing for me. But caused problems. But caused problems. As we recapture the amazing good of hardship, the good of self-denial, the essential challenges of life, and the magnification of Christ through the courageous suffering of His faithful servants, we reconnect ourselves to, to the Jesus who suffered and died that we would not. Look, look when, when life robs you of everything, including the last shred of your dignity... All you're seeing from that is a slight glimmer, a tiny glimpse through the keyhole of what Jesus gave up to be Jesus. Because his pride was really worth something and infinite in nature. And to be honest with you, justifiable and holy. Mine is, is sin condemned and dead. And the magnification of Christ through the courageous sufferings of His faithful servant. We're called to suffer courageously. We connect ourselves to Jesus who suffered and died that we would not, that lives and reigns to make intercession for our sins and that saves to the uttermost those whom He has personally claimed from the darkness of sin and shame. All we do when we feel robbed by the world of everything that we hold dear is connect ourselves more deeply to the one who purchased our eternal freedom. That's all we do. And all he asks is we suffer it with courage. David begins this particular text with a question. What shall ascend, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Although it's poetic and it's symbolic, the questions are less a search for acceptability than they are a statement of qualification. God accepts no man or woman because no man or woman on their own is qualified. So literally what he says is no one gets to do this. Because no one by themselves has clean hands and a pure heart. No one has never lifted up their soul to what is false. And no one does not swear deceitfully. In other words, find me one liar and at least you, one person who's never lied. And at least you meet that one of the three qualifications. Show me somebody who's never lied. All of us have. All fail to meet the basic standard of what our Lord requires. Consider the following verse. For the qualifications clearly say, He has clean hands and a pure heart. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. And does not swear deceitfully. Now unfortunately, no one can meet that standard but Christ. Again, the wonderful thing about the Old Testament is it always points to one central figure in the New Testament. And that is Christ Jesus, the God-man, our Lord and Savior. Always points to him. Solomon records in Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. At that time it was absolutely right. Because he was prophesied and yet to come. But he would be here. To shatter even that verse. And now there was. Was the God man. Who's righteous. 
does good and who never sins. No one of us measures up to the standard by which our Father judges. Both the sin and the sinner are condemned and unclean. Thankfully, we're not alone in our struggle, nor are we abandoned to perdition and hell. Paul states emphatically the gospel truth to which we cling when he writes in Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God, the most beautiful, some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. It's so bad. Our situation is so bad. We are destitute. We are hopeless and broken and forever cast out. But God. When you and I could do nothing for ourselves. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. He's rich in mercy. Because he has so much love for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when our sins are so great that we are dead in them. We are condemned without need of a trial. We are so far below the acceptable standard that we could never get there. Even when we are dead. Dead in our trespasses. We're made alive together with Christ. By grace you have saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The overwhelming riches of the mercy of God motivated by the infinite nature of His love and despite the fatal nature of our sinfulness made us everlastingly alive through the grace of Christ, lifting the saved beyond anything we deserve to a rightful place that only He deserves or can earn. He has brought us to the right hand of God with Him. Only He can do that because only He deserves to be there. I deserve hell. I deserve condemnation. I deserve eternal punishment. I deserve to suffer and suffer and suffer for, for an infinity just to make up for a single one of my sins. I deserve all that. And just simply put, so do you. But God, rich in mercy, driven by love, took your place. Suffered your death. So that now you can live forever with Him. We are now exalted, even though we should be condemned. This is the great part about it. I don't sneak in under the fence. I don't get in and live in the ghetto of heaven. I'm not kept at arm's length. He'll, he'll pass me, but He won't talk to me. Because that's the way humans extend mercy, right? That's what we do. Look, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. How many times have you heard somebody say that? Nonsense. Nonsense. He forgives as far as the east is from the west. He forgives and it's at the bottom of the ocean. It's buried forever, never to be seen again. Well, I deserve condemnation. I received exaltation. I've been brought to be with God. He promises Psalm 24, verse 5. We will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation are now ours through the cross. Blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of salvation. All given through Jesus. Absolutely, Jesus paid the cost 
of our freedom and our elevation beyond any dream of man or woman. We could, if we invented salvation on our own, if we all collectively got together, seven billion souls and decided what we wanted, it would never even approach. It wouldn't be a tiny little glimpse of what, what our God did eons ago in saving us. We are able to live for Christ because He died to set us free. And because He died to set us free, we now must live for Christ. Because all these things we talked about are absolutely true. Because the cross was real. And the tomb was real. And the Lord who hung upon them was infinitely more real than anyone we could ever imagine. Because He reigns and rules right now and makes intercession for us. Because He lives for that very purpose. Because all of these things are true. Then right now at this moment, we must come to the absolutely biblical logical and theological conclusion that we've got no choice but to live every moment for Him. Because that's the only deal that works. It's the only thing that makes any sense. If He's done all of this, if I'm saved from so much infinite pain and infinite punishment, if I'm allowed to get away with what I absolutely did and given a righteousness I could never purchase or even experience on my own, if all that is true, then I have to live for Him. As Winston Churchill famously said, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves. What should we do? Brace ourselves to our duties. No more excuses. People who won't miss a day of work in 10 years will miss three Sundays in a row and three Wednesday nights. We can be so loyal and so dedicated and so committed to so many earthly things and show so little commitment to the living God. And if you really think about it, it's not right. It's not right. If it has to tear our hearts out, it's supposed to. It ought to. If it doesn't, if it doesn't, then we've got a problem. He's talking about seriously what we're talking about here tonight is exactly how much do I really belong to Him in my daily life. Look, folks, the world awaits, brothers and sisters, and we must set aside our desires and our petty grievances and attend strictly to the work of the Lord. As much as I'm dedicated to all these things that really matter to me, to be honest with you, matter to my flesh, can I be more dedicated? Can I be hyper-dedicated to the things that matter to God? David gives us a name uh, uh, in this section when he writes, Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So who are we expected to be? A generation. A generation of what? Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now listen to what I said there. Name dropping matters. Name dropping matters. Look, the redeemed must seek the face of the God of their deliverance. That is, that is just unquestionable. If we have truly been delivered from our sins... If we have been born again by the power of the blood of Christ Jesus and His gospel. If that is true, then we seek the face of our Deliverer. Then now Jesus becomes the central figure in all of existence for us. Because He's the one to which we owe everything. He's more important to me than my wife and more important to me than my kids and my grandkids and everything. It's got to be that. It's got to be more important to me than every single person I've ever met or ever will meet. 
Because no one has done anything for me to compare with what Jesus did on Calvary for my sins. To what He did. Nobody can get in the way of that. Because Jesus has to be the central obsession of my life. It doesn't mean I don't love my wife. It doesn't mean I don't love my kids or my grandkids. It means that I'm now blessed that I can love them in light of how I love my Lord. I can love them through my love for my Lord. I'm mean, listen, like Jacob. He says, the face of the God of Jacob. Like Jacob, we're imperfect servants and we're pitiful stewards of a wonderful and vital inheritance. If anybody's a scoundrel within the scriptures, it is Jacob, the usurper. And he was always like that. Jacob would rely on lies more often than he relied on the truth. So what God has called our attention to is not just the fact that we have a divine call here. To serve him in ways that, that we probably haven't even thought about, to be honest with you. With a faithfulness that we may not have ever started to grasp in our lives. But we also understand that like Jacob, we're going to spend some time being really bad at it. Like Jacob, it's going to take us a long time to get it right. We are, by the grace of God, who we are. Past failures and current fears should not restrain God's people. From serving Him with absolute disregard for anything but the pleasure of the Lord who has called us to His side for eternity. Yeah, we're not going to be so good at it. But we're going to reaffirm the fact that we all acknowledge that this is who we're supposed to be. The time for games has to be over. That we're not going to be those kind of people. And that we understand that it's going to mean serious commitment. And turn our backs on some things. Finally, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 3, How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Look, as believers, we cannot afford to neglect the precious salvation that our Lord has died to make possible. And especially to neglect the gospel that communicates this fact to our hearts and the everyday impact of salvation in our redeemed lives. So we can't fail to recognize and think about and talk about and preach to ourselves. You may not preach, but you can preach to you the precious gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sins. What's, what's the, the siren call for our hearts that draws me back to look to Christ all the time? It's the gospel. But those things we talked about today, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for the sins of His people, of which you were some, for the church. In which he saved you. He knew who you were. He knew everything you would do. He knew your worst day. And yet he would save you. He would draw you out of darkness. Into the light. He would do that. He wouldn't shut you away. He wouldn't turn his back on you. He would seek you. He would beckon to you. As an example in... As I lay dying, William Faulkner wrote, People to whom sin is just a matter of words, to them salvation is just words too. And they're not just talking about words. Because this is church. There's a lot of preaching, a lot of talking, a lot of singing, and a lot of words. And sometimes in here, believe it or not, words can be cheaper than anywhere else. At work, we don't use our words loosely. Our words have consequences at work. Our words can get us fired, right? 
like that. As we tend to think about those words more deeply. Sometimes I think we come into, into, into God's house and we, we pray these things and we preach these things and we sing these things and they are kind of just a matter of words. That sin can be just a matter of words. So I know it's a sin because the Bible says it is, but I don't, I'm not so worried about that. And the, the, what Faulkner rightly said, not, not a man of God in the church's imagination, but this is makes common sense. That if sin is just a matter of words, then maybe salvation is too. If we act like the gospel's not a covenant, if we act like the commands of God are, are unimportant, if we act like God speaks to us in a way in which we don't really have to listen, then what does it say about the promise he made in salvation? The gospel's not just words, and salvation is far more than, than mere sentiments but an authentic path for the trans transformation of a dead man into a living being that's verifiable by the works of redemption that only the new heart and spirit in Christ can work in the life surrendered to the everlasting master. The everlasting master. Let's pray together.